I'm Kate Northrup. And I'm Mike Watts. And we're partners in life, love, and business. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, where we share insights and interviews on entrepreneurship, relationships, parenting, self-actualization, and making a life, not just a living. Hey, welcome to the Kate and Mike Show. This is Kate. This is Mike. Today, we have an amazing guest that we're so excited to introduce you to. This is a guest who I met because, well, we've actually never met in person, but I started following him on Instagram. I do not remember how I found him, but that's the joy of the internet. So Aaron Rose is a speaker, writer, diversity and inclusion educator, and transformational coach for public figures. He is devoted to healing our crisis of separation and political polarization by designing radically inclusive community cultures, facilitating individual recovery from trauma and isolation, and empowering the next generation of social change makers to lead the way. Aaron has facilitated cultural transformation across multiple industries from wellness and spirituality to tech and finance using a unique mix of restorative justice, neuroscience, metaphysics, and meditation. His clients have included McKinsey & Co., Columbia University, Greenpeace, T-Mobile, and more. Aaron equips social change makers and public figures to embrace their unique role in building a better world and to be conscious stewards of collective healing. As someone who has experienced both violent discrimination and unfounded privilege, Aaron is a champion of a world where we are celebrated for our unique incarnations while also transcending the labels that keep us divided. I would just like to say that's a beautiful bio. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so I'll take that bio. I know this is beautiful. We talked about we Aaron was is so open. We talked about his recovery from his Catholic upbringing. He was really open around his healing and continued healing with his family as a transgender man. We talked parenting, meditation, what to do when you hear bigotry in public at a coffee shop. Uh, what else? I think that covers it. On Like there was more, but like There's all of so those. There's so much more. All those bullet points really covered everything that we talked about today. I cried. It was great. So. <laughs> you cried. I did. Enjoy the episode. If you like it, please share on social. Screenshot it. Tag us. Tag Aaron at Aaron X Rose. And of course, subscribe, leave us a review, and enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Kate and Mike Show, Aaron. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. We're so happy to have you. It's been a long time coming. I don't remember when I started following you, but it was a while ago, maybe a year ago or so. And I've just been loving the love that you put out in the world. Honestly, my first question, well, I have so many questions, but my first question is this. In my research, though we've never met personally, um, in my research, it sounds like you've been through a lot. And yet, as I'm looking at you here for those listening, which is all of you because we don't publish the video, uh, we do have the video on so we can see each other. But like, as I'm seeing you here and then the pictures that you post of yourself on Instagram, which are few and far between, but I really enjoy them. Um, the light just really shines out of your eyes. Like you are just this beaming, beautiful being. And so I would love to know, what are the tools that you practice for resiliency? Because not everybody who's been through what you've been through is as effervescent as you are. 
That's a beautiful question. And thank you. It does feel like we've lived, I don't know, three to 4,000 lifetimes since we started following each other less than a year ago. That's also um, a that's good drink. Uh, what's <laughs> the place in effervescence is a good drink at the, mm. it's that place that we used to go to when we stay at Heather's house, the what? restaurant in LA. Oh, Cafe Gratitude. Cafe Gratitude. Gratitude, Yeah. Yeah. The effervescent. That's that's my favorite one. I know. That's That's you. (laughs) Amazing. I am effervescent. So it's really, it's, it's been an interesting journey because everyone I've heard throughout my life, people reflect that light back to me. And for years I heard it, right? For years I was sort of being asked to step into leadership positions as a young person and people telling me that I had this light, but in some ways I wasn't really able to see it because of how intense my life was. I really was, and so there was this contrast where for about two decades, I really, you know, it was very touch and go. I felt that deep, deep weight of pain of just feeling so bewildered by the world of feeling like I came in here with all of this love and here meaning earth, <laughs> I showed up for this lifetime with all of this love and, and I'm not receiving it back. And it seems like there's new rules in order to get it. And it feels really confusing and I'm getting feeling just like bombarded and attacked from all sides. And really until my early twenties was you know, daily suicidality was part of my story in terms of just this sense of one foot in, one foot out. Like, I don't know how to make this life thing work. And that was happening because of really complex PTSD and just ongoing discrimination that I was experiencing as a queer person in the world. But at the same time, I was a community organizer starting by the time I was 14, 15, 16 years old. I was running national leadership training events for hundreds of students when I was 18, 19 years old. And I was really out there promoting optimism and promoting this sense that, you know, there, it should not be like this, but there's a better way that that hope has always been part of just this, this fire burning within me. And, and I see it even in my awe with nature, just seeing a tree and being like, wow, (laughs) look at that tree, right? Like, look at that kid laughing. Look at that flower. Look at that person who just helped that little old lady across the street. I think that my resilience always started with, I think first, just no matter what happened to me, there was this sense of even if what is happening seems like it's never going to end, it's not right. And if it's not right, then something else is more real than what is happening. And that thing is love, right? That thing is, is truth, is connection, is peace. And so that little fire has always been burning within me. And then it's been this daily practice of saying, okay, if I can't practice gratitude for where I'm living or who's around me right now, what can I practice gratitude for? So no matter all the other spiritual practices I've layered in, everything from A Course in Miracles to breath work to daily meditation to all of these different things that are part of my daily life now, I'd say that that not pushing away little moments of joy is resilience technique number one. Like I'm going to get really excited about whatever someone else is excited about as long as it's not hurting someone else. And I'm going to be really, really excited about, Oh, wow. I mean, just yesterday I was listening, preparing for this podcast and I was walking down the street, listening to your podcast. And then I saw this heart in the sidewalk that said, Mike, 
and cat, which I thought was close enough. And that, you know, gave me, gave me fuel, gave me joy. And then I was, I shared that joy with you. And so I think that that moment by moment, joy practice and refusing to believe the story that this isn't a beautiful place to be. and can't be a more beautiful place to be. That's, that's how I, that's how I keep going. Mm. I love that answer. That's great. Thank you. I also would love to know what is it like and how do you, and it may be this, you can just be like, it's the same answer to the question you just asked me. (laughs) How do you hold at the same time the world is and is not the way we would like it to be? Yes. So it's, it's a balance. And for me, it really is. It's an integration of several different spiritual practices. The first spiritual practice that came to me as I was clawing my way out of the Catholicism in which I was raised was Buddhism, right? And Buddhism speaks so much about the revolutionary power of being the loving witness to what is, not turning away. And so that is deeply part of my practice. I'm not going to say everything's perfect, high vibes only, let's keep it moving. I don't want to look at the bad stuff because that's going to create more of it. No, right? If I tell the story that the bad stuff is all that exists and then it's all that is possible, that is what perpetuates it. But I owe it to myself and to my full humanity to look at what is not working right now and to bring to it that loving almost inoculation of the energy that I know should be in the world that is truly our peaceful state, our natural state as human beings. And so for me, it's about this balance between refilling my well, spending time, whether it's by myself, in nature, with community, creating more and more and more of the experience that I seek to see everywhere in the world and reminding myself, this is what's real. Love is what's real. This connection is what's real. And then, you know, when I see painful things happening out in the world, looking upon it, asking what I can do about it, but bringing that energy of this is not our natural state. And so it is this sort of back and forth balance. And I think earlier in my activist years, I put a lot of energy behind You know, the thing I most fiercely defended was you have to understand that this isn't okay and you need to do something different. And now the thing I most fiercely defend is my joy, is my peace, is my love, because I know that that is what transforms these moments. And if I see myself as brave in any way, it is the bravery to go into the burning building, trusting that you're not going to get burned along with it, right? And trusting that you have something to contribute that's going to start to to calm the flames, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is there a story or a time that you could share? So this thing happened to me at the coffee shop this morning, and I thought of you. There was this guy speaking very loudly at the next table, rattling on about all kinds of things that really pissed me off, including saying disparaging things about Pride Month. And... Mm -hmm. There were so many things that went through my mind and I was like, do people walk up to strangers at coffee shops and tell them off? Do like, what's the right thing to do? But I did nothing. So I'm just sharing. I did nothing. However, I am in my, so then in my head, I was like, (laughs) I could do a post on Instagram about this. And then I was like, 
really, Kate? Like that's really just taking things to the internet. And I don't think that social media in my experience, but you may have a different experience, which I'm open to, is the most optimal place for certainly confrontational conversation. And I find that when I have conversations in person, it's so much easier to find love and common ground. So I would love to hear a story, if you can think of one, of not, you know, approaching strangers in coffee shops who are pissing you off, but having conversations, like having a conversation with somebody who maybe going into that conversation, you two were on very opposite ends of a spectrum in terms of belief systems and maybe how that conversation went and, you know, just anything you would have to share about a specific circumstance of, of bringing somebody in, especially you talk a lot about the call out culture and, you know, anyway expound upon that if you would. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And thank you for sharing that. It's amazing how we get served these little moments that are so timely based on what you're doing later in the day. So many different images just flooded to mind. And the thing that I, and I'll speak to a few little stories, the thing that has transformed my life so significantly when it comes to approaching conversations with people who think things differently than, than me and who I might say your belief system actually means that you maybe hate me or that you are putting negative emotions, your disgust, anger, frustration towards me. It's from A Course in Miracles, this line, in my defenselessness, my safety lies. I love right? that line. <laughs> and it started with a little, you know, when I first encountered it, it was a total as if I was like, nice one, God, let's see if this actually works. But over time I was, I was hungry for a different experience and just coming in with my supercomputer brain, being able to be like X, Y, and Z are the reasons why you need to be different. And I'm going to logically convince you because it ultimately just led, led to me feeling separate from people and the positive feedback that I got was mostly from other marginalized people saying, you did a great job telling that guy off but did we actually feel better? Was there actually connection? And what I'm speaking about is situations in my personal life, as well as many different encounters and trainings as a diversity and inclusion educator. And, and I had this one moment that really shifted everything for me where this guy named Todd and Todd and I are, he doesn't mind me saying his, his name because we're friends now. And we went into this training and, and he was resisting the feedback he was getting about what he needed to do to be more supportive to the women in his workplace. And I could see him getting really upset. And he was like, how can you tell me that I have to do all these things for them? It seems like everything's equal. And it just seems like everybody is fine for them to say that all men suck and that, you know, they can make that joke. Right. And he started to get really upset. And I could, I could feel his throat. I could feel that he was, the tears were coming up. And in that moment, it's like my strategy, my defense strategy just broke. Right. And I really saw, okay, in order to truly transform any of these situations, I have to love this person and every single person, the same amount. And I have to love myself that much as well. And so in that moment, it, it was the beginning of me go before I go into any interaction, sending love to everybody and making it really clear sometimes verbally but often just energetically by sending love i literally mean taking that little you know hotel lobby glass elevator down from my mind <laughs> into my heart seeing my mind's eye go down there seeing the light there and seeing that light go out to someone else and really understanding that 
everyone has been so deeply harmed by the systems that keep us in this oppressor oppressed violator violated dynamic and that everybody's carrying really deep pain and there's so much power in simply looking at someone and saying i know you've been through a lot and i know that you want to be a good person before you have a conversation about how you'd like them to upgrade their behavior because so much of what happens when you don't do that is that they're just defending their idea of them being a good person right and i was in a training yesterday where someone said, every time I talk to my, my parents about LGBTQ people, they just say, it's just too much. It's just too much. Like, I just can't get it right. Right. And I just, and then they start to say a little bit of disparaging things and they were asking for advice. And I said, it sounds like in that situation, people, they're good people. They're confused that it seems like there's so many rules in order to be a good person right now. And they would rather be separate than mess it up. Right. And so to kind of bring it all home, I'd say that over and over again, I've had these moments where if I simply send that love and I remind myself nothing that is essential about me can be taken away from me by this person. And I put up my shield so I don't get hit with their shame shrapnel, which is what I call it when <laughs> other <laughs> when other people are feeling that guilt and that shame and that yeah. confusion. And then I speak to them, you know, if, if I were in that situation, I probably would have gone up and said, you know, the coffee shop situation, I probably would have aligned my energy in the best case scenario, aligned my energy and gone and said, Hey, I'm really not up for hearing you talk about people like that. Mm. It's really, I'm sure you don't mean to be hurting other people, but it's, it's making it hard for me to sit here and enjoy this space. And I'm sure that you, I'm sure you love everybody, but the way you're talking, it's making me feel, it's making me feel kind of hurt and it's, or it's making me feel, you know, fill in whatever the emotion is and kind of just bringing that energy of like, FYI, I don't know if you know that this is the impact that you're having on the space right now. I'm giving you the best, the, the benefit of the doubt. And then, you know, as we need to, if you were to come back with intensity, you know, just, I, I pick a mantra in that, in that space where it's like, I need you to stop speaking to people like that. I need you to stop speaking to people like that. You know, this is a space where people more, all different kinds of people are welcome. It's really hurting me that you're speaking like that. And just sort of staying in your own reality and not crossing over into his and knowing, I'm not going to get it right, but A Course in Miracles says, anytime you seek to be an agent of love, you have succeeded, right? So even if you don't have that perfect resolution and then you're like on the news because you perfectly intervened and he like has reaccepted every gay person in his life, just in that one moment. <laughs> yeah. And he's like the honorary pride person, you know, whatever. Yeah. Even if it doesn't have that, it's like you have the relief of having stood in integrity with yourself. And also when the trigger comes up, we just let the emotions happen, right? If you were to leave that feeling so upset and like, I don't know if I did the right thing, just crying those tears, letting that emotion for the harm that has been done to LGBTQ people, just honor it within yourself, right? And and let that love also be part of, you know, whatever medicine you were called to deliver in that moment. Thank you. Where did all of this start? You know, like, of course you said you had love at birth, but then there was a piece <laughs> where you're losing love. It started at birth. <laughs> yeah, it all does, right? And then like, when did this, because you were an activist, you know, you were doing things at 14 years old. So like, what happened? What took you off your path? Mm. What you on your path? Yeah, it's that's the first path. Then 
put you now on your second path? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. And I always say this is the version of the story I'm telling today, right? Because there's so many different, so many different ways I could describe it. But it was, it was as if I woke up one day and I was like, oh, wait, there's a lot wrong with the world. And I'm, and it's not just that I'm uncomfortable in my personal life, like there's injustice. And I remember I, part of my childhood, I grew up in New York. I remember seeing even like the carriage horses in New York city pulling the carriages. And, and I would write in my journal, like when I grow up, I'm going to buy all of the horses and I'm going to set them free. Like I always had that, that instinct. And when I was, a teenager, I started just to say, there's got to, you know, we got to just start tackling this problem. And I always say that the question of how do we all get along is the question that drove me in the same way that some, some people, you know, once they hit their teenage years, they're like, I'm going to Mars, or I'm going to become a surgeon, or I'm going to create this new technology. It was the question that was driving me. And so in some ways, I just jumped right in. I was doing peer-led education, just a group I started with me and some of my friends where we would talk about thinking globally and acting locally, right? So we would bring in probably, you know, PG-13 are, you know, just intense, like, do you know what's happening in the world kind of awareness building stuff to our peers in high school. Like I would skip lunch and I would just go around and talk in different classes and say, big problem, malaria, genocide, whatever, here's what you can do in your life right now. And that led into becoming a community organizer on food justice, environmental justice, worker justice, and the breaking point or the shifting point out of many was this, when I started to realize, wait a minute, we're talking about building a better world, but we're all really stressed out and how much change are we really creating, right? We're talking about change, we're seeing some wins and we did, we, we created some amazing solutions, but there was this sense of deep burnout. I used to sort of joke that I would go to work and it would be like, which organ have you sacrificed for the revolution this week? And I saw people even just fighting and, and this sort of sense of, we'll deal with that cultural piece later because we have to save the world. And, you know, everyone from Gandhi to Martin Luther King Jr. to, to many others have spoken about how our means and our ends have to be aligned, right? If, from a quantum physics perspective, all we have is now. And so if we're not treating each other the way we would treat each other, once we got to utopia and everything was fixed, we're never going to get there. And so that started to come in for me and it led me on the path of really finding more innovative ways to organize, to create change and really thinking about how can my life be a living, breathing example of that utopian energy that we're all seeking to create. Um, and it also coincided with me just owning my spiritual gifts more as well as just my gifts as a teacher and realizing, just feeling that my energy was better spent teaching and sharing and creating rather than being 14 hours on the street, knocking on doors. Although I will go show up and do that when I'm called sometimes. So that's one version of, of the path, but happy to clarify more. How does one become a diversity and inclusion teacher and expert and consultant? Is there like, is there a program you do? Is it, you just decide, like, tell us more about that. Yeah, from there are people who get formally trained, and I've definitely been trained in lots of different little ways, different meditation teacher trainings and anti-racism trainings and things like that. But mostly, and I used to not say this, but now I say it because I think we're really in a place of innovation around what qualifies us to do what we do. And ultimately, it was a calling, and it was a question that I dove into 
half of my lifetime ago when I was when I was in my early teens and I was obsessed with it and I was obsessed with how do I create situations where we actually change? I researched and researched and researched and also as any call, any when you're truly on your purpose and on your path, you can't not answer the call. I was doing a little bit more behind the scenes work, sort of designing curriculum and things like that rather than teaching as much. And I just kept being invited to do trainings. Will you please come speak? Will you please come speak? Will you please come speak? And then one day I was like, okay, <laughs> okay, God, I got the message. Like I really, I need to be all in and actually and the feedback I got was, I've never been in a training like this before. I've been in a lot of trainings that have made me feel really ashamed and have made me feel really confused and that haven't really changed anything, but something was different about this. And so I owned that, right? I kept owning that there was something about my love and my optimism combined with my commitment to not looking away from what has happened that was creating experiences of community that people were deeply craving. And so there was no choice but to continue and just to continue to hone my craft. So before we started the episode, you mentioned something about generational healing. And I was just thinking about what that means in my life, Mike's life, the world. And I'm curious if you could talk more about it specifically. Well, what do you mean by that? Number one, I know what I think you mean, but (laughs) that may be wrong. And then also, so we're parents, And I know I've already screwed up royally, right? And I do great things too, but like multiple times a day, I fuck it up. So. Mm, Good thing you got me here. (laughs) Thank God, because Mike is a perfect father. Don't mess up anything. (laughs) And so, and then I think about my parents who I see both of them frequently. I live within 20 minutes of both of my parents. I'm a hometown girl. And, you know, there's stuff, Right. And I've done my work. They've done some of their work. You know, whatever. We're doing our best. How important is it to actually, because I have friends who are totally estranged from their families. I have, you know, there's a huge spectrum out there. How important is it to actually have real conversations with these people and have them make amends or you have to make the amends or whatever? And then like, how important is it to just do your own work there? And just, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I just want to honor your path choosing to be parents. And it's, it's something that hasn't been part of my path yet. And I really, I honor the intensity of it and the bravery of it. And so I just felt moved to say that. And I'm sure you have, your kids are just beautiful from what I've seen on Instagram. And so when we speak about generational healing, you know, we can think generationally in terms of bloodline, but we can also think in terms of just waves of humanity. And so we're in this moment right now where we're being called to clean up the mess of the past. We're being called to look at all of these autopilot patterns of dehumanization and violence across all these different vectors of identity, of race, of gender, of sexuality, of country of origin, you know, every which way humans have been convinced that we're separate, even though we're not, (laughs) we're having to deal with the violence that has been, a product of that illusion of separation. And we're really, truly at this time going through such a massive consciousness shift and up-leveling on the planet. And as we, you know, when we look at the chaos of our world, to me, to some people, it looks like, you know, we're doomed. To me, it looks like, wow, humanity must really love itself because it's no longer giving itself an option to not look at the stuff that's keeping it separate from love. To me, it's, a, it's an expression of our intention to have better lives that 
that things look so bad because we can't not deal with it right now. And so when we speak about generational healing, it is about A Course in Miracles speaks about atonement, which is the undoing of that original cause of the pain. And we have, you know, 12-step model of amends, lots of different ways that we repair. And I think that the the heart-centered intention is what matters the most, the not looking away from the pain. And when we think about it from a, a larger collective level, I speak a lot about, okay, what does it mean as someone who shows up in the world looking like a white man, who I, which I basically am in this lifetime, how do I, no matter what my ancestors actually did, no matter what I have done to women or people of other genders as a man, how can I hold space for that pain and rewrite the pattern that says, you know, the autopilot pattern with men and women is, okay, I see your pain. I see you at a hundred. Like if you can meet me at 75%, then we can have a conversation, you know, like you're kind of over-exaggerating and there's maybe some logic to what you're saying, but I need you to tone it down just like a little bit. And how can I just not do that? Right. Just witness the pain of, of women in my lives, witness the pain of the women in my trainings. And sometimes that is just organically as it shows up. And sometimes it's just saying to a friend, Hey, there are things I don't understand about your experience. Would it be helpful for you or, or not even would it be helpful if you'd like to, I'm here just to listen, just to listen, right? Thich Nhat Hanh says that one of the most revolutionary things we can do is sit quietly and listen to someone for 15 minutes <laughs> and just <laughs> let them express. And that's why we have all this, this call out culture is that we finally have this cultural permission to just let it out. I'm like, for those of you who can't see me on video clutching my throat right now, it's that sense of that constriction that we're all releasing. And And you're saying that's why there is this call out culture that's happening. I think that right now it's, it's one piece of it right now. We are definitely in this moment where we finally have cultural permission to be witnessed in our pain after generations of your pain literally doesn't exist. If you're a woman, especially if you're a woman of color, if you're a person of color, black people in America, but a lot of us, and even men, right? Even wonderful Mike Watts here, a white man, right? You have experienced pain in these systems as well. White men have unexpressed stories about harm that has been done to them. So I think we're in a moment where there's quite an explosive, like, wow, I finally have a chance to tell my story. And I finally have a chance to play out the dynamic that has happened many times where I get hurt and then I say that I was hurt and then people listen to me, right? So there's sort of that return to the scene of the crime energy where we're trying to recreate the dynamic and then have a new experience of it. And I can speak, I can speak a little bit about that question of does it matter for in person or not, if you want. And, you know, cause I'm someone who's been on quite the journey with my family years of not speaking, then we spoke, then we didn't speak, this ongoing process. And I think that it's the most, in-person is amazing, but you know, 12, the 12-step 12 approach to amends is that you don't do it if it's gonna hurt them or you. So really, it's almost like slowing down enough to go fast. I have seen so much more transformation in my relationship with my own mother by sitting in loving kindness meditation every day and sending her love, but not speaking to her than I have in years of us trying to get each other to understand each other. And I know that that's energetically laying the groundwork for us to come back together in a totally new frequency. And so I think that space, space is okay. 
And it can feel like, wow, I've got quite the laundry list of things that I have to do on behalf of myself and humanity. But the most important thing to do is just to make it a daily practice in the same way that taking care of our bodies or the earth should be a daily practice. And, you know, it's not up to us to complete the work, but it's not, you know, we have to, we have to show up every day and just do the next, just a single next right thing. I have a question. You can answer it if you want to, you can say, I'd choose not to. Like, what would you consider your underlying, like that tension between you and your mother? Mm. So the simplest way that I can say it, or maybe not the simplest, just the most accurate way I can say it right now is that I am part of a lineage that has a lot of pain the way that many people do, right? I was raised in a really intense Catholic family. And by really intense, I mean that Catholicism despite the veracity or the love of the, that is at the essence of Jesus's teachings. And also, you know, if there are people who are Catholic who are listening, I don't judge you for, for the experience you're having, but my experience of it was that it was this abdication of self, that it was this denial of your desires of who you really are. And this sense that no matter what you did, you would always be in trouble. And that there was no way to dig yourself out of this hole of being wrong in some way. And that you couldn't yourself fix that because you always had to go to some external authority, whether it's the priest or God to tell you that you were okay. And, and that leads to a lot of silence. It leads to a lot of control. It leads to a lot of fracturing um, of identity, right? Trauma fractures us. We, we look at people who hurt people and we're like, Oh my God, he was so great. How could he do that? And it's like, well, there's the part of him that's amazing. And there's the part of him that was also abused. And so then he played that out on someone else. And so when I think about my family, I have deep compassion. I see this like freight train just barreling through the generations, like down the timeline, just knocking people out of all this unexpressed pain and this unexpressed ability to be fully self-determined and to truly just experience the love of the universe and other people. And, you know, I clearly came into my family to end that. And so there has been tension there, right? Cause I saw things very differently than my family and they initially were, had a pretty a strong reaction to me being LGBTQ in any way. So there was then sort of the more life we lived, the more detritus there was to clean up, the more there were those painful moments. But the bird's eye view that I have is that the things that hurt me are the same things that hurt her, right? And I, in some way, no longer fault her for playing that out because I know that she was just, you know, she is intending to keep herself safe and just doing what she could with what she had. And that her love for me is really, really deep, which is why it's so painful, right? That's why it's so painful when we have, at least in my case, it's like, if we didn't really care about each other, we'd just be like, goodbye, <laughs> see you in the next life. But we're here to learn how to love each other. And that has been my, one of my greatest teachers. And so I have to be grateful for it as, as well at this point. And then what would you like to, I guess, what's your dream scenario? With my family? Yeah, when it like comes to your mom. Mm, well, we've, I, the last few years we've said, we've mirrored back to each other. We both want the same thing, which is a, a happy family, which is the sense of like, I love you and you love me and everything's fine. And we can talk about intense stuff, but we can also just coexist. That's my goal. But ultimately, I know better than to prescribe a specific outcome, right? I could tell us, mm -hmm. I could tell all different kinds of stories, but I know that 
I'm deeply on my mission and on my path and she is as well. And I honor her for being in this process with me. And frankly, I'm kind of, it's been such an interesting path so far. Interesting with like the asterisk of all kinds of <laughs> pain and intensity and just horrible, you know, just the horrible human experience of not feeling connected to the people that you want to feel connected to. You know, I ultimately, I wish us both peace, like mm. to meet at the end of the road <laughs> on the zero point field, you know, like Morpheus and Neo and the matrix, just exactly as they are with nothing else and to feel at peace. That's the goal. And I, I have no doubt that we'll get there. I just don't know what, it'll, what it will look like in the, the 3d world. If that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good segue to something I wanted to ask you about, something I've been thinking about regarding taking care of ourselves, which seems to be an ongoing theme in your work. It can be really hard to take care of ourselves. I'm going to speak personally. I find it hard to take care of myself sometimes because other people's well-being gets mishmashed into my well-being. So if somebody else isn't okay, who I really love and maybe who I share DNA with, then I don't feel okay. And so I've, something that's been an ongoing practice for me is expanding my capacity to feel okay, even if someone I love is not okay. I'm curious, is that something that you think about? And if so, how have you over time expanded your capacity to be okay? Like knowing that maybe in, at least in the past, fundamentally who you are has been problematic to your family of origin and to keep living your life and finding joy, knowing that, you know, other people aren't okay, who you love. How do you do that? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. And I just felt like felt your emotions and just felt the emotions of so many people who are navigating that who are like, you know, yes, I understand self care. Yes, I understand boundaries. But like this being that I love is not okay. And therefore I am not okay. And I want to honor that as such a deeply human experience. And in some way, I'm seeing the reflection of the trees in the window where I am right now. And thinking about nature and this beautiful, abundant mother earth that we were all given the privilege <laughs> to live on. She is not okay. And so we are not okay. It's, it's a fundamental thing that we're all navigating right now. And so the primary thing that came to mind and is really that same resilience practice of surrendering to the universe of asking for favor of asking to be shown the good in the situation and being attentive to see the little moments, right? Even if you're caring for someone who's really sick, right? And there are those little moments where even if it's like something spills and then just ends up being hilarious and finding that joy, but, but the paradox, anything that's fundamentally very true, I think is deeply paradoxical, which is that you can deeply prioritize your own well-being and, and know no matter what happens to this other person, even no matter what happens to me, I'm going to be okay while also sitting with, wow, I can't deny that I feel upset right now. I can't deny that I feel drained right now. Um, and I think it's also just a product of the way that our modern society has fractured us out of collective groups that are doing caretaking. So it's, there's a lot more weight on a single person, even with, you know, a one-to-one -one ratio with you and your, your children right now, that's still a pretty intense load for two people to carry, even with, even with family members nearby. And so I think part of it too, is just acknowledging that you should have more support 
you should have more witness to your pain and that self-care often is this thing that it's like we do it as alone time to retreat from negative stimuli it's like i'm like i'm out <laughs> no one contact me airplane mode on my life as opposed to self-care being sitting with your kid who's sick and eight other people in your community and singing a song or telling a story or you know just having that level of support hmm. Or like airplane mode for your life. That's pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> Great idea. It's <laughs> pretty good. So there's lots, of, a lot of stuff happening in the world right now, right? As, as you talked about, like this pain is coming to the surface, and so every day you could turn on the news and there's attack against someone that's a Muslim, attack against a synagogue that's Jewish. I'm reading David Hogg's book. One of the, the him and his sister wrote a book together from Parkland shooting and just like their experience of being these 17, 16, 14 year old people. And like, they were very activated into just like, they're like, well, the adults aren't taking care of the business. So we're going to do something about it. Right. Like, so there's guns, there's like so much right now we have a ton of asylum seekers in the United States are being transported to Maine as we speak. And mm -hmm. it's like a hundred people in three days. Right. So it's like, you hear that and they're all sitting in the expo center is where they're being because it's like the city wasn't ready for a hundred brand new people that have no place to live. Right. So they're being taken care of by sitting in this expo center. Like where do someone that feels like I want to help, but I don't know where to start. Like, so as you're working with people, I guess, how do you help people kind of navigate those waters? Like, where should I put my energy to? Because it's also the fractured energy. Like, there's no way I can fix a hundred things at one time within a week. No, because right? when I ask you to, you get very... <laughs> That's true. <laughs> On yeah. a micro level. <laughs> yeah, because I have you and then I have Penelope going, Dada will just fix it. It's fine. You know, so now... Anytime anything breaks, she comes, Mama, this is not working. I, You know what? You just, Daddy will fix it. <laughs> you're, tra you're training them well. Okay, good job. And so... <laughs> Feminine starts at home. Feminism starts at home, folks. <laughs> so, like, how do you help people navigate, like, where to start? What should they focus on? How do we focus this fractured space? Because you turn on the news, and it's just like, holy crap, like, what's happening? Beautiful question. And I just want to honor that one of the things I love about you two and doing this right now is how much you laugh and how much humor there is inserted in the podcast. And I feel like it's just an expression of the medicine that we're talking about. So thank you for your humor. And it starts, there's a couple of layers. First, it's about making it a daily practice, right? I really think that the pain of the discipline of a daily practice just pales in comparison to the pain of the chaos of your life. If you don't have a way of checking in with yourself and that which is greater than you and with your intention. And so for me, it's about how do we even just start with that intention and with my clients. And I do, in addition to the sort of group work that I do, I do transformational coaching for public figures, supporting them in finding their voice. And, and we, we do it in these bite-sized ways. And so instead of saying, okay, you're going to meditate for 20 minutes in the morning and at night, and then you're going to read a course in miracles, and then you're going to journal, then you're going to pull a tarot card and then you're going to say a prayer for all of humanity. And we make these, these sort of categories where we honor ourselves for doing a minimum effective dose within each of them. So we have a breathe category, right? Some days your breathing might be 20 minutes of breath work or an hour, 
one day it might be that you close the door while your kid's crying on the other side and you take three deep breaths, <laughs> but you still have that sense of momentum. So breathe, move, right? Moving your body physically connect, right? Connecting with nature, picking at least sort of three verbs that you're going to touch base with every single day. And when you're doing that personal check-in personal work, bringing the collective into it, right? So if I'm doing my personal, if you have like a manifestation practice or an affirmation practice, or when you're stressed, you look in the mirror and you're like, I love myself. I love myself. I'm whole and complete, right? How can you add something on the end there? That's I'm whole and complete. And I live on a healed and whole planet. Everywhere I go, people have fresh water, right? If we're, we're working so hard, we're like, okay, I have a six figure business. I want it to be seven. I want it to be eight, right? How could we put even a fraction of that energy towards just visioning the world? Because if the world is good, we're good. And all of those other micro little things that we're worried about in some ways are things we're reaching for to comfort ourselves <laughs> in the midst of like, I don't know if I would need an eight figure business if we had world peace. Yeah. Boom. So, <laughs> so there's that piece, the daily practice. And then in terms of getting very specific about what action you can take, that feeling of overwhelm is part of, it's part of the control matrix, right? It's part of this negativity that's keeping us in separation that keeps us so scattered. And so I say to people in some ways, you know, what you're meant to work on is what has been the greatest pain of your life? What has been the greatest thing that you've ever learned? For me, it's been about love. It's been about loving the people that hate me and understanding that, that my liberation is tied up in that. And so I'm really clear that my mission is about separation and healing that. And I let the way I respond to that organically evolve. For other people, it may show up as, you know, as being about their connection to nature. And so giving yourself, honestly, just even taking, setting the timer for 10 minutes sitting and just having this question of what do I love about this world <laughs> and where is there not enough of that? And just also letting it evolve. You know, I spent years of my life doing labor organizing and working on food and environmental justice. In some ways, I'm still working on that, but just from a different different approach. And so I think that the most important thing is picking one thing and making it something that you deeply invest in rather than running from thing to thing to thing to thing. This is very much do less, achieve more activism. So thank yes. you for that. Yes, <laughs> the do wonderful. less approach to activism because it's also means and ends, right? If the end I seek is a do less life where I get to chill with my family and everything feels good and I get to be creative and happy and all of that, how can I question any story that tells me that I have to destroy myself in the process of creating that final outcome? Well, also just setting aside time. I gave a client the homework yesterday to sit in the bath and cry about the state of humanity, because sometimes we just need to let ourselves feel it. And just to be like, it's horrifying to me that I can't fix all of this. And just acknowledging that is also part of the healing because in that emotional metaphysical acknowledgement, you're also sending love to those people that you might not be directly physically working with. I'm going to switch gears as we bring it home here and ask you about social media strategy, because I found you on Instagram. You're an excellent communicator. 
in the public sphere. And I'm just curious, do you have a social media strategy? Like what is your growth and leadership strategy in the public sphere? Yeah, because we have a lot of business owners who listen and they want to know, as do I. It's a beautiful question. And it starts with never forgetting the metaphysical laws of the universe, right? We can get, I myself, you know, I can get new information about, oh, you should post this many times a day or someone I respect is like, do this and then this will happen. And then part of my brain's like, you know, runs off of that baton and then like runs right into a wall, you know, and it's (laughs) just, you know, I'm, I am also human, right? I also have that, that, that overwhelm that's part of social media still impacts me in some ways, but I really, I try to respect having phone on and off hours a lot and thinking about my social media community as truly a quote unquote IRL community thinking about my intention. You know, I will cancel on friends sometimes and I will say, I can't hang out with you right now because I'm not going to be fully present. And I want you to always know that when you're with me, I really want to be there and I can fully show up. And so bringing that to social media as well, sometimes I'll write something and I'm like, wow, Aaron, that was, that's amazing. You know, it's just like a book in my notes on my iPhone and I get it all loaded and ready. And then something in me is thinking, Oh, I wonder if people are going to like this or, you know, there's just an energy of tension and I don't post when I feel that or I'll post and, you know, sometimes I'll press send and I'll say, you know what, archive that we're going to put it up tomorrow because I really listen to the energy and I also set the intention. I think, what do I want people to receive from what I'm putting out? I will do my little Reiki thing on every single one of my Instagram posts. I think I picture someone opening it up. I think I want this to hit them in this way. I want them to feel inspired. I want them to feel loved. And I put that intention in it. And if I can't be present enough to do even five seconds of Harry Potter magic on that before it goes out, then no matter how good and smart what I have to say is, it's not the time for it. So I really focus on that intention. Truly, why am I posting? Why am I doing anything? Because even if I have this self-concept that I'm a great person and that I want all of my social media to positively impact people, if I'm stressed and I just hung out with my friend who has like 10,000 more followers than me or whatever, I could easily post something that's beautiful with the intention to, you know, just get a lot of likes or just feel better about what I'm doing, right? That those sort of like shadow ego sides. So that alignment is is so important and it, and it really does solve so much and noticing, okay, if there are these like social media ghosts in your head where every time you post, you're like, wonder what that person's going to think, or you're thinking with that tension of like, Ooh, I hope this person, if they see it, then they don't see it too long is then they might think something bad about it, or I might get called out or whatever, bringing that into your daily practice, dissolving that tension, doing a loving kindness meditation, sending love to them and just working with that tension. And, And I do that with my clients. And when that happens, it's always like, wow, all of a sudden I got a great comment from that person. Wow. All of a sudden someone from that group that I was afraid of reached out and they want to write for my site. If we just work with the energy intentionally, then a lot of magic can happen. And I also just try to treat social media. Like it's my house, right? I got rules. You have to take your shoes off. And if you don't, then you have to leave. And it's okay to have those boundaries while also questioning that knee jerk reaction to boot someone when you're immediately triggered. Hmm. I love that you do Reiki on your Instagram posts. 
This I have never heard before, and it's genius. It's a whole new level right now. <laughs> you took it, it to a whole, whole new level, level, and I love it so much. <laughs> I'm so glad. And actually, can I add really quickly for those of you who are like, oh, Reiki's too high level. Now I have to go spend $500 to be able to make an Instagram post perfect. Just picture like the light of the sun coming out through your hand. Picture like you're going to pet a dog that you love a lot. And, or touch, you know, like hold a baby that, that you care about and just picture that sunlight just going into the phone and out the other side and hitting the other person. That's enough. Thank you for that description. That's excellent. I will be doing that, obviously. <laughs> Mike, do you have any final questions before we wrap it up? How's your recovering Catholic going? Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, recovering Catholicism. There we go. We can do a whole part two on that. <laughs> the short-ish answer is that I'm at a point in my life where I'm not willing to have my quality of life and my humanity be compromised by holding hate against other people within my body. And so I work with it. It's serious. You know, I do my daily practice includes reprogramming work, includes shadow work almost every single day where I'm still going back and things come up and I'm thinking, okay, why am I still playing out this story in my life? This story that I'm not good enough, this story that I have to be this way in order to be loved, whatever it is. And then the memories come up, right? And I, and I look at them and I shine the light on them and I bring a more empowering energy to them. And so it's not over, but the words of A Course in Miracles have really transformed my life because I really deeply feel now that only love is real. And so despite the pain that the Catholic Church has caused, and that's, you know, the asterisk on that is like a five-page footnote in terms of just its role in colonialism and violence against women and in just a vast majority of the fear that exists on this planet right now, despite knowing all of that, it's like, I know I'm going to win because I know love is only, only love is real. And so I just have to keep being that. And at this point I have almost, you know, an excruciating level of compassion for people who still feel stuck in a system that's telling them that they're less than. And so it's an ongoing journey. One that I think is it's the work of my lifetime. So we'll see where it takes me. Yes, we shall. Well, it will take you far. I just have absolutely loved getting to know you more. This has been a pleasure. I just think you're such a beautiful person. And I love the way that you talk, which is kind of a weird thing to say, but I really do. <laughs> so where can people find you? Where can they learn more and connect? Yes. And thank you. This is, it's been such a pleasure to connect with you as well. And I love the do less message and just the, the heart that, that both of you and just the honesty that both of you are bringing into the world from, from your, your arena. So people can find me online. Instagram is where I do a lot of daily posting and it's where I connect with people the most. That's at Aaron, A-A-R-O-N X Rose. And then you can also go to my website, www.aaronxrose.com com to learn more about the deeper work that I do um, with organizations and communities and public figures. And yeah, if you love this episode, definitely give me a shout. I'm always in my DMs on Instagram and, and love truly to hear from people because that also really informs what I create, hearing where people are in their own processes. Cool. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I am so excited to tell you that my new book, do Less, A Revolutionary Approach to Time and Energy Management is now out. You can get the book 
along with a workshop on how to set boundaries and say no, and a workshop on how to apply the 80-20 rule to your life so you can get 80% more results with only 20% of the work, plus two Maven masterclasses over at katenorthrop.com forward slash book. And the book is available anywhere books are sold. Get your copy of Do Less.